0: This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 one for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Monroe Bergdorf is an activist, model, writer, and broadcaster. A contributing editor at British Vogue who's written for multiple publications, she has, since 2019, been a national advocate for the United Nations and the recipient of an honorary doctorate from her alma mater, the University of Brighton, for her campaigning work in transgender rights. A founding member of L'Oreal's Diversity and Inclusion Board, She's also the host of Spotify podcast, The Way We Are, and the hit MTV show, Queer Epiphany. She was born to a Jamaican father and English mother. She grew up identifying as gay under Section 28, the notorious piece of legislation introduced by Margaret Thatcher's government, which prohibited what was termed the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities and schools. Bergdorf began her transition the year that the Equalities Act passed in 2010. The first GP she spoke to said he had never met a trans person before and would have to Google for help. Times have changed since then, largely because of the tireless effort of activists like Bergdorf, whose work has often come at significant personal cost. Her memoir, Transitional, is out tomorrow and is a riveting blend of memoir and manifesto, so enlightening and quotable that I found myself dog-earing almost every page. In it, she refers to the universal nature of transition. Transitioning is ingrained in our human experience, Bergdorf writes. It is not a process that only trans people go through, Transitioning is universal. Transitioning is an alignment of the invisible and the physical. It's the truth rising to the surface. Monroe Bergdorf, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honour to have you. I was raving to you earlier about how
1: much I love your book. God, I feel so emotional because just hearing that from people that I really respect and look up to. And it's just such a bare book. Mm. It's like, I've really laid myself bare with it. And it's so honest and it's been very difficult to revisit those experiences, almost more difficult than it was to go through them because you're on autopilot. But then going back there when I'm in a completely different place, knowing that the book resonates with people, is just everything so thank you so much
0: thank you for writing it and thank you for your bravery in making this public in so many ways but I wanted to ask you about how you wrote it because it's yeah. unique the way you blend it the way you blend mm-hmm. personal experience with this really fiery eloquence about what you think about the world <laughs>
1: yeah well, with, through a lot of frustration. Yeah. Um, but I actually wrote the book three times. Mm. So the first one was kind of more theory based. So it was more manifesto. Second one was pretty much per, like all memoir. And then I merged the two. So I just kind of like found a way to weave it. Mm. I wanted it to be memoir, but I also wanted to give context to why. I went through what I went through and you know not not only talk about section 28 but talk about the human cost of that because we often talk about legislation but we don't talk about the actual impact that that has on queer youth we don't talk about you know the lives of queer youth we don't talk about youth as people that have lives and you know whole identities it's been very very tough it's been a very very difficult book to write it's my first book so I'm glad that I got the hardest one out the way. Yeah, and you're a
0: terrific writer. Can mm-hmm. I ask how old you are?
1: I'm 37.
0: Because you write with the wisdom. Sorry, sorry, I'm
1: 36. <laughs> I was like, how old? How old do I? Be <laughs> I
0: know, you write with the wisdom of someone who is 85. Thank you. And and I wonder. I suppose I have two questions about that. One is that there's such a clarity to your thought process on the <laughs> page. And I really admire that and I'm quite envious of it because I'm someone who often doesn't think she knows what she actually thinks. And I wonder if you do know what you think, if that's always been the case or if you think it's the result of everything you've had to go through. Because you've been in a position where you have
1: had to Mm. think and advocate for yourself almost at every juncture. Well, it's a really cerebral book. It's almost like you're inside my head with me. I think I'm in a continual process of figuring everything out. The book is really the process of me figuring it out. The curve of the book is almost like I experience trauma, then I become the trauma. And then there's a gradual separation between me and the trauma, being able to look at it almost from a bird's eye perspective. So I think I'm still figuring things out, but I really wanted to just share what I have figured out for sure. And also give people resources. I think that people often think that they need to be the ones to figure it out. And looking at the works of different thinkers and plugging into your community and also sharing your own experiences and listening to the experiences of other people, that really helps you figure it out. Because I think, We all feel like we need to have all the answers. We need to go through everything alone. We need to be our own hero, which we do need to be our own hero, but we also don't need to do it alone. You know, other people can be our heroes too. And I think that that really is the power of community.
0: I also really value that idea of the truth being made visible through transition. Do you feel you're living your full truth now?
1: I mean I don't think I'm living my full truth because I think I've got you know a lot more growth to do and a lot more transitional moments to experience but insofar as not living a life of shame and not living a life where I feel I need to be something that I'm not not living you know amongst the expectations of other people I think definitely as much as I can at this point for sure. You write
0: about your childhood in the book, and I deliberately mentioned that thing about Section 28 in the introduction, because as you say, it's so powerful to remember that legislation has a human cost on an individual level. Can I just touch briefly on what your experience
1: at school was like? It was really, really tough. I think it was tough for a lot of people of my generation who are queer, just because there was this culture of silence when it came to being bullied for being gay or any kind of queer identity. It was almost that like you couldn't talk about your identity, so you couldn't talk about the bullying that you were experiencing. So it kind of forced everybody into silence, you know, the bullies and the bullied and the teachers, the teachers couldn't address it. The teachers couldn't. I mean, I had one teacher who spoke in code to me and I didn't even really realize what he was saying, but he was like, you know, if you're being bullied for who you are, I just want to let you know that I want to say something. I I want to help. I only just realized, you know, at, at university what he meant. So it was a really, really horrible time you really felt like your lived experience was second fiddle to everybody else's. We didn't have any access to sexual education. We didn't have any access to, you know, the feelings, understanding the feelings that we were going through. You know, the aspect of shame was magnified because there was literally no one to tell us that we should feel otherwise.
0: Yes. There are some very powerful passages where you talk about how you learned about sex from porn. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you had to, because the only sex that we're taught about at school, if we have any sex education, is heteronormative. And I was like, that's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And because I'm privileged by being part of that majority, Mm -hmm. I'd never thought to question that. In the same yeah. way that there's this incredibly powerful passage in, on page 110.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> about growing up gay. And yeah. how growing oh, up gay... You, oh, I'm glad that you liked that. I loved it. They, yeah, I think what well, I was going to and throw about whether or not to keep that in, just because it's a real departure from the flow. But I, I really, I'm so glad that I kept that in.
0: That's the bit I was going to ask you to read. And had I not forgotten my copy of your brilliant book, I would have asked you to read it. But it's this whole passage, it's almost like a spoken word poem about growing up gay meant, for instance, that you never heard pop songs celebrating that kind of love. And I just Mm -hmm. thought that was so... It was just so important
1: to read. I wanted to paint a picture about the little things that build up into a bigger picture. And it's, you know, the constant microaggressions that we talk about. So, you know, it's not a big deal on its own, you know, a guy wolf whistling at you on the street. But when it's constant Mm -hmm. and when it's, you know, constant little things that build up into a big picture of other people thinking that they're not big things, it really starts to wear you down. So... Yeah, I'm really glad that you like that person. I loved
0: it. I'm so glad you kept it in. Before we get onto your failures, I also wanted to talk about the fact that you're very ahead of your time, repeatedly, through the course of your life. (laughs) You've spoken out on issues or you've crested the wave of something that society has really taken a while to catch up on. Mm -hmm. So that moment I mentioned when you went to speak to a GP in Mm. 2011, he was like, oh, I'm going to have to Google that. Never met a trans person before. Blew my mind. That's only 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And the other thing, and maybe we'll get onto this as part of one of your failures, was the incident that you went through with Mm L'Oreal. And how when you posted about Charlottesville and about the racist killing of an activist, Mm -hmm. you were using words that many of us didn't use until the murder of George Floyd, until Black Lives Matter became something even bigger Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. I wonder how lonely that sometimes feels.
1: It's lonely, but at the same time, I think being forced into a a life of silence is more lonely. And I think for so long, I really felt like I had to be silent. I felt like I couldn't say what I felt and it's worth it. It's worth the backlash. It's worth people, characters assassinating you. It's worth all of that because I know that that's the truth. Mm -hmm. And when you speak the truth, when you live the truth, when you follow the truth in terms of where you want to go. I, I feel like that's something that you can hold in your core. So yeah, it, it is tough and it's frustrating. You know, it's never good to have a GP have to Google to help you, but that's also the experience of so many people. GPs aren't infallible gods, you know, they're, they're people and they're under pressure increasingly, especially as, you know, there's mounting pressure on our NHS. I think that they're very, very hard pressed and things are happening that they've never seen before. So I think that that hopefully, unfortunately, is an experience that other people can feel seen in.
0: Yeah, and you make the point in the book, I should say, that you'd rather the GP was ignorant rather than bigoted. Well, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. He was just a bit of a hopeless, you know, he, I mean, he was, definitely wasn't an idiot, but he was just like, seemed like a little bit away with the fairies and just like, oh, I've never seen or met a trans person before. And I don't know, just kind of like looked at me like I was some sort of like unicorn. Yeah. And I was like, I'm literally on the brink right now. Can you <laughs> yes. Can you please just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, he he was nice. He was nice. It was just... I. Was, would rather have had somebody who was just like right yes let's get you to a psychiatrist so that they can diagnose you and get you onto the waiting list because it's mounting up and it'd be great if it was somebody who understood the social context around being trans and you know you're not gonna understand that with a quick google (laughs) so like kind of where to refer me to yes that's googleable but when it comes down to the actual needs of a trans person that's something that medical practitioners and caregivers should know and they don't
0: you mentioned earlier that the personal animosity the hatred directed towards you is worth it for the greater goal I salute you for that because I can only imagine how much you have to contend with and I feel like you never asked to be an activist but you're here and you're expected to be
1: Well in a way it kind of saved my life I think because you know I I started speaking out when I felt massively frustrated as I'm sure that you've read in the book and I felt like it was my way of coping. I didn't really think of it necessarily as activism I just thought of it as a way of me being able to connect with other people and then I guess it turned into activism when I started working in the fashion industry and started booking interviews and it just kind of like snowballed and happened. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll just go with this because it's really what I want to do anyway. I want to educate people. I want people to understand what I'm going through. I want to give people context so that people know what other people are going through. And I mean, it is worth it because I know that what I'm speaking about doesn't just affect me. I'm not speaking on my own behalf only. I'm speaking on behalf of literally millions of people who can't, Speak up for themselves, who don't have the same platform that I do, who are constantly, you know, who don't have the same privileges that I have now. I once upon a time didn't have the luxury of having the money to get cars, and I would have to get on the tube and get spat out on the tube, get people pushing me, pretending to push me onto the tracks. It's just constant harassment. So I know what it's not like I've always had this privilege or this life I know what the everyday life is for a trans person and it's not something that I'm willing to back down on it's not something that I'm willing to water down or stop talking about because a few people want to shut me up
0: I'm so sorry that you've had to carry that pain I'm I'm so sorry that you've had those experiences and I'm so sorry that like we let you down like the rest of us let you down I'm sorry
1: everybody has their thing you know, society lets women down. Society lets black people and people of ethnic minority groups down. Society lets down so many different kinds of people. And I think that's really what I want to get across in the book is that marginalization and oppression and prejudice, that's all it is. It's the same thing. We are all People. So it doesn't matter what kind of guys it takes, it makes us all feel the same. Yeah. So if we bind together as marginalized people, imagine the change that we can make. Imagine how many more of us there are than them. And I don't know, I I just think that that's really what I want people to take away from this book, apart from the fact that, you know, none of us stay the same forever, and that the world has always changed, and it will always change, that we all have very similar experiences that have been separated and given different names by design to divide and conquer us so that we don't fight back together.
0: Oh, I could just listen to you talk for hours. Um, Thank you. And it's such a beautiful croak, way it.
1: Croak, croak at the moment.
0: <laughs> We're approaching. It's very sexy. <laughs> Thank um, you. It is a beautiful way of looking at it. I mean, the world is literally spinning on its axis every day. The world is transitioning every single day. Mm-hmm. The world is evolving every single day. You strike me as an extremely truthful person. I wonder if, do you pick up on energies when people are lying? Are you capable even of telling a white lie? Like, you look great in that one. Okay, you
1: are. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you have to. You can't go through life just, like, giving it raw to everybody. I mean, everyone's kind of, you know, navigating their own difficulties. Sometimes you need to just, like, tread lightly. But, I mean, yeah, I like to think of myself as a truthful person. I think it's important. But, you know, we're all human beings, and I'm not... You know, I'm no different from anybody else, but I think that it's always the best policy. I haven't always been a truthful person, you know, but I think that that's really testament to where I was in my life and the life that I lead now. Yes, Mm. but when you are forced into a life of shame and secrecy and almost like like self-hatred, of course you're gonna, you know, lie because I used to lie because I wanted to create a better impression of myself because I didn't think I was enough as I was. I would lie to get my own way because I felt like the, you know, the cards were stacked against me in the first place. It was very much self-preservation, but I think the more that I poured into myself and invested in myself and curated the people that are in my life around me to also be truthful people that I didn't feel I had to compete with, that I didn't feel like I had to tear down to bring myself up or that weren't doing the same to me. I felt like I could live a life of truth. And that's really what transitioning is, isn't it? It's living your Mm -hmm. truth. It's, you know, having a career that feels fulfilling. It's having deep and honest friendships that you can lean back on that give you a support system. It's living authentically with your gender or sexuality and transitioning from a life of shame into pride. I mean, that's all that pride is as well that we celebrate every year. It's being able to live as your truth. So, yeah, I I do try to be as honest as I can at all times as long as it's not going to hurt someone else's feelings.
0: (laughs) Let's get on to your failures. So your first failure is your failure to seek out healthy partnerships which as you put it to me led to your journey into self-acceptance and a partner that you deserve. Yeah
1: it's kind of what I just talked about but I think that we often don't help ourselves enough because we're trying to change ourselves within a atmosphere of chaos and i i really feel that it's important to bear in mind the people that are around you and make sure that you're not holding on to things because you feel like you should hold on to them i'm just kind of talking in riddles right now but i used to date in a way that i felt like i should either fix people or I felt like I should be with people that were kind of punishing me in a way that I wasn't, you know, willing to punish myself. I was in abusive relationships for a long time. I was in very violent relationships, and it was almost like I was with them because it was a way of punishing myself, and I didn't need to do it. But once I started understanding that I need to be the one, to love myself enough to not be in that relationship anymore. It was easier to pull apart and it was easier to get away. Yeah. But it's the relationship dynamic of, you know, abuse. It's it's somebody feeding off of that part of somebody that desperately wants to be loved, but there's also an element of self-hatred. And for me, it was really, really tough. It was one of the hardest things to write about in the book. And then once I started... Nurturing healthy relationships, and the first person that I really found healthy love with was actually another trans woman, and that was something that I didn't ever see happening. And she actually passed away this year. I'm so um, sorry, Monroe. Yeah, it, it's been really, really hard because, like, she's you know, my first big, great love, and that I really count as real love, and I think. The fact that she was also trans and also a woman allowed me to fall in love with my own transness in a level that I hadn't really acknowledged. I hadn't acknowledged an aspect of internalized transphobia that maybe also led me into an abusive situation because I would so desperately wanted to be loved. Mm-hmm. I desperately wanted somebody to see my humanhood past. The physical. I would often just end up in relationships with people that would either fetishize me or want to control me or want to, you know, embolster their own masculinity. And with my ex who's passed away, it was really none of that. It was all about just like loving me as the person I was. And once I had that love in my life, it really just filtered out. And I started making better choices for myself. And I started putting the love that I gave into other people, into myself. And then it just almost kind of like it would just bounce between us. But she just taught me so much. And then from then onwards, I've really not shied away from feminine aspects in other people, whether or not it be men or women. I haven't dated a non-binary person, but I mean, I'm pansexual, so just, you know, I, I love people, but the aspect of femininity up until I was in love with Ava. Just I, I never really embraced that. So I think in falling in love with another woman and another trans woman, it really allowed me to love myself.
0: That's so profoundly beautiful. And what an extraordinary gift Ava gave you. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You put it so powerfully, that idea of not being able to love yourself and I'd love to read the quote that I literally took a photo on my phone as soon as I read this, because I ne- I was like, I need to remember this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I need to quote it to other people. You wrote, you can't hate yourself into someone else loving you. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time to realise this. Ain't that the truth? I mean, that is
1: everything. Everything. It's simple, but it's, you know, it's 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 the tea. It's... Unfortunately, I don't think that we think enough about why we put up with these kinds of situations, why we allow ourselves to be treated in certain ways, why we overlook certain things. And I really did hate myself because it's all that I was taught. From an early age, I was made to feel like the outsider. Then the outsider, got turned into like the monster then the monster got turned into a ghost so I've been navigating a space between being completely ostracized, monsterized or invisibilized and then by the time that you're a young adult you're like where's my self-worth? I had none and my choices really reflect that and that's why I'm really trying to exercise empathy you know with people that aren't in their best moments either and you know we we've all got those moments that we look back on and we're like I really didn't behave how I should have or how I would now and I think that that's really what this book is is showing that it's not always our fault
0: yes you can transition into loving yourself Mm -hmm. You were talking there about your relationships in young adulthood, but I was very struck in the book about your relationship at school Mm -hmm. with the person who bullied you. You had a crush on him. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I thought that was really interesting because I was like, oh, it started very early then, that idea that if someone was treating you
1: badly, that's what you could hook on to. Unfortunately. Yeah, but I also don't think that that's something that's uncommon. When we were younger... You know, when the boys used to, like, pull the girl's hair, they would be like, oh, it's just because
0: he likes you. Yeah. It's so dysfunctional, isn't it? It's so weird.
1: (laughs) And I guess I really, really internalised that. But it was also a very, very innocent relationship. I mean, he was my bully, but he was also everyone's bully. He was just a real, you know, that kid that's in primary school that just is obviously not having a good time at home, They're just lashes out. And I managed to find his soft side. I managed to get him to open up to me by writing me letters that we would leave in each other's lunch trays. And this is in the book, one day his mom found the letters and then she homophobically assaulted me when I was, I I can't remember how old I was, I think I was eight. And, you know, she had him in one hand, she had the letters in the other hand and she was shouting words at me that I had no idea what they meant until I got to high school and then I was being called those names again. So, uh, yeah, it really started early with, you know, kind of going for the wrong people. But I guess that that's also, you know, testament to how I felt about myself.
0: I think also, again, you write about this very respectfully in the book about your parents, Mm -hmm. but there's also a sense that unless we have the full confidence that our parents love us exactly as we are, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that's going to have a knock-on effect in all of our relationships.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you said that about sensitively writing because it's so hard because I've got such a great relationship with my parents now, but it hasn't always been great. So how do you write about something that hasn't been great whilst also respecting the relationship that you have right now. And also understanding that they are also people that are growing and transitioning and have their own arc of, you know, understanding other people around them, especially those who they love. So it was really, really tough. But I wanted to just be honest. I wanted to show them... That I'm proud of them, but also like show other people who are going through the same thing with their parents that it is possible to find resolve. It's possible to see your parents as you know infallible people and still love them. It's possible for them to also read this book and renegotiate the relationship with their child. But I I yeah, it was it's one of the hardest aspects of the book. Because there was that element of doubt when I was growing up that do my parents really love me? Am I even, you know, their child? Have they, you know, where do they pick me up from? (laughs) Because I'm definitely not related to anybody in this house. I often felt when I was a kid and it was really, really tough because... Looking back, I know that they loved me, but it was often not shown in the way that I needed it to be. I needed them to say that we don't care what your sexuality is, we care about your well being, we want an open dialogue, not a closed one. We- And all of these things I really needed, I just needed like openness. And unfortunately, my parents haven't always been very, very open or willing to facilitate the conversations that I needed back then. And that's all I needed really was a conversation. I needed to be able to talk about the things that I was being silenced outside the house. I really feel like a home should be somewhere that we can talk about anything. And it would have given me the core that I needed back then, but we've come so far and I don't hold any, you know, ill feelings towards them anymore. It's really taken a long time to get to that place, but we're in such a great place right now.
0: I'm so glad to hear it. And that's great advice for any parents grappling with anything that they're confused about, making <clears throat> home a space of safety and openness yeah, and being open to the conversations. Fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com
1: forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wildcard, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
0: Have your parents read Transitional? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got nothing to fear. They, I think, mm-hmm. they come out of it really well.
1: It's, it's hard, hard, isn't yeah, it? We've like been
0: on a journey with you. Yeah,
1: it's it's hard because you need to read the whole book, and yeah. I just feel because obviously they lived it with me. And there's so much hurt there anyway with how we've all behaved. I mean, I'm sure that they will one day, they will one day, but I've said that I don't want them to read it just because the the levels of violence that I've experienced throughout my life. Mm. They know because they've been there having to pick up the pieces at times. But I don't really want them to read the ins and outs of what I was getting up to, having underage sex with men who were grooming me or, you know... A
0: policeman at one point. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or like, you know being raped and like things like that. I don't want them to have those images of me in their head. Yes. So that's the reason that I don't want them to read it. Not really, you know, they know that we haven't always gotten along and seen eye to eye, just like so many teenagers with their parents. But it's more, I don't want them to blame themselves for what I ended up going through. You mentioned
0: the fact that you were raped there and you write about that in the book. I'm extremely wary about bringing this up because I don't know where you are with whether you want to talk about it today Mm -hmm. but I also want to acknowledge it because it was terrifying to read so I can only imagine Mm -hmm. how much more horrendous it was to go through.
1: Yeah yeah I always say sometimes the hardest thing to really grapple with after being raped is that sometimes you feel like you would be better off dead because it's like somebody who has it in them to rape somebody, you kill something inside somebody because that person will never see the world with the same kind of eyes ever again. So it's like a part of you dies and then you have to navigate the world with a part of you that's dead. And it's like you can see other people living their lives with that part of them still alive and that carefree nature and that almost ignorance that everybody should have, that you don't know that somebody can behave in that way. You haven't seen that look in somebody's eyes. You haven't seen somebody that's trying to kill you. And it was just the double edge of, you know, that it wasn't just rape, it was that he was trying to murder me. And in my own bedroom. So it's something that's really hard to live with, but it's also something that we don't really talk about, especially people in the public eye. I feel like we don't really talk about it. I want more people to feel that they can. And I want people to understand that this isolating feeling of, you know, the part of you feeling like it's been killed is, is something that you can work through. And I have worked through it. I still have PTSD. I struggle to stay in houses, to sleep in houses. It sounds so silly but um, I prefer to sleep in apartments that have multiple doors just because he broke into my house whilst I was sleeping pretty much. And um, I lived on the bottom floor. So I, I struggle with beds that are near to doors. So yeah, it's really hard. And it's, it's something that really doesn't just stay in your past. And again, in the book, I show how that's had a knock on effect with you know, the relationships I ended up in. I ended up punishing myself after I was raped. And then that led to abusive relationships because I couldn't love the body that I was in. I was then being demonized externally by people who didn't love the body that I was in because I was trans. I struggled to find partners who could see me as a human being and not just trans. So I'd be fetishized. I couldn't have access to healthcare. The law wouldn't help me. I couldn't get employment. So, yeah, it, it was really just a hole. And that's a hole that so many trans girls are in. And then when you have that compounded by people in the media who have things to say about people and experience that they have no idea how hard it is. You know, imagine how hard it is. We all know as women how hard it is to be a woman, but then to have other women campaign against you on a subject that they have no firsthand experience of what it's like to be, it's just mind-blowing to me. So, you know, I'll always be batting for my community. I'll always be the one to speak out because we need it because there are women that are on their knees that need help, that are not getting it from the government, that are not getting it from the media and aren't getting it from people that should be, you know, holding our hands and protesting with us because we're protesting with them.
0: I am so grateful for you. I will always hold your hand. I'm so sorry for what you went through. I'm so grateful that you chose to keep on living. I'm so grateful for your strength. I'm so grateful for your beauty, which comes as a result of your strength and is not just about how you look, although you are phenomenally beautiful. I'm so grateful. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for talking about that. Thank you. Thank you. Before we move on to your second failure, where are you now mm-hmm. with relationships? And I suppose it's a twofold question. Are you in I a happy knew relationship? I you would <laughs> <answer> this question. <laughs> Come on. No, no, know, no, it's I fine. I want the happy ending. It's all good. Um, are you in a happy relationship, but yeah. also... What's the relationship like with yourself? Is it a daily effort to love yourself?
1: I don't feel like it's... I'll start with myself first. I don't feel like it's a daily effort anymore. I feel like I've really had a breakthrough this year. I started this year in the worst place, and I can talk about it now because it's been a real journey this year. For so many people, I feel like this year has Mm. been chaotic. It's been chaos. I started this year in a very, very dark place. I had to check into rehab for anxiety and depression. And then I actually, (laughs) half my face froze from stress. And then I had um, an ectopic heartbeat and my body started like shutting down because I was so stressed. So I was forced, I'm laughing about it now and it's not funny at all, but I was forced to take two months off work. And after those two months, I really started understanding that I had been living in survival mode Mm. for years, because I hadn't taken, who can take two months off? That's a privilege in itself, but, I started to realise how I didn't know what it was like not to be stressed. I didn't know what it was like to not feel anxious. I'm only now realising that I'm living without anxiety. And that's something that I haven't experienced in years. (laughs) So that's why I am smiling, because I'm not in that place anymore. And I'm really proud of myself that I've poured into that. It's lovely. And I'm not taking it for granted. And I'm also not playing it down because, like I said, for years, I haven't been able to just, you know, throw on some clothes, tie my hair back, and go down to the shops. It's always been kind of like catastrophizing what could happen on the way to the shops. What could happen if you bump into somebody and they're not seeing you looking perfect? What could happen if, you know, you're photographed or like, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like I'm not working against myself for the first time in my life, and that feels amazing. So, yeah, I am in a relationship. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) I got there at the end. I'm in a relationship. I've been in a relationship for like the past year and a half. He's amazing. He is our chef, which is amazing.
0: Okay, that's a great combination. I know,
1: (laughs) I know. So yeah, lots of great food, lots of really fun, romantic times. And it's great to be with a partner who isn't threatened by somebody who is extremely ambitious and successful in their own right. And doesn't feel like they need to diminish my achievements or dreams in order to make way for theirs or make themselves feel better. He's an incredible person. I'd really written off man Mm. until I was with him. And he's really shown me that good men do exist. And especially good men can be a good lover and a good friend and a good person in the life of a trans woman. And that's something that I'd really given up on. I never thought that I'd be able to find like a healthy love with a man, especially a cis man, so.
0: Congratulations. I want to respect your privacy, but I also want to ask how you met, but you don't have to tell me. No, I'm an open (laughs) book at this (laughs)
1: point. Um, We have a mutual best friend. I can't do the apps. I'm a romantic person. I really like to feel like I'm meeting people in situations Mm -hmm. that it's almost like serendipitous that there's like some sort of, you know, fate there. Yeah,
0: like a meet cute. Yeah. Yes.
1: So yeah, we, we just met through my best friend. I was actually in a gay club with him and I was like, no one fancies me. And he's like, well, obviously no one in here fancies you, but I'm living with this person at the moment and he won't stop talking about you. And then um, he put, us in touch and we went on a date. He took me to his friend's restaurant and the chef was bringing us food to the table, like stuff that wasn't even on the menu and just kind of fell in love with him really quick. Oh,
0: so happy to hear that. Thank you.
1: (laughs) I'm so bad at talking about personal stuff. I don't upload any personal stuff on social media. I'm really big on boundaries and that's really up until very recently something that I haven't been willing to compromise on and obviously with this book I'm showing you know a more personal side and being very honest so yeah it's something that's very new for me it's like sharing the things that are really close to my heart.
0: Well it's a really wonderful thing and I think you do a very good job of still maintaining boundaries where you need to Mm -hmm. in the book you do talk personally but you're very kind about other people. That's a, do you think? I do. I do. Like, you definitely, I mean, when people deserve kindness, not when they don't. Okay, <laughs> okay. There's some reads calling. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, but like with your parents, there's a lot of forgiveness mm-hmm. in the book alongside calling out dysfunction, mm-hmm. which is necessary to do. Calling out danger, calling out violence, like that coexists with. I don't know. It's just, I, I'd never read anything like it. I'm not doing a very good job of putting it to work. I
1: think you are. Okay. It's, okay. yeah. The yeah, I, I get what really, you mean. It's
0: blended. It's just like
1: blended in a really
0: beautiful I, way. That's
1: really what I wanted to get across. I, I think in this time, I'm such a millennial. I always start with, I think I need to talk with more assertion like Gen <laughs> Z. We, we're we in this time where we're constantly encouraged to pick Yes, no, yes. bad, good. Things can be everything all at one time. Somebody can act like a complete asshole and still be a nice person. So people can, you know, make bad choices and not be a bad person. I think that it's really important that we try to understand that we are all human beings that are whole beings that can be different kinds of people day to day and you know you can meet somebody on a really bad day but it doesn't mean that they're a bitch you can meet somebody on a really good day and that doesn't mean that they're not awful to somebody else we're really nuanced as individuals and that's really what i wanted to get across in the book
0: that's exactly it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Teamwork. Thank you for saving me there for myself. Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay, your second failure, you've already touched on it, but it's your failure mm-hmm. to forgive yourself and others.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I was talking yeah. about. I was really angry at my parents for a very long time. And that resentment that you hold on to when you are at war with somebody, you end up being at war with yourself because you're the one that holds on to it. You're the one that carries that around. So many arguments that I've had with people and then they're like, I didn't even know that (laughs) you felt like that. I didn't even know that, that there was animosity there. And then you realize that you're the one that is at war with yourself because they don't care. So ultimately... I've just tried to lead with more forgiveness with other people because I want that same forgiveness. I want to be able to like forgive myself for like what I've gone through, but I also want to forgive other people for what they've gone through. Because I think in extending that to other people, you can extend it to yourself and vice versa. So I think it's a holistic thing. You go through life angry and then you end up being angry at yourself. And then it's a self-feeding cycle. And then also being unforgiving to yourself, you just continuously go from chaotic situation to chaotic situation. And then you seek out the chaos as well, rather than seeking out the peace and then you feel uncomfortable within the piece. So I look back at how I was functioning and I forgive myself because I was, I was in survivor mode. I was doing the best that I could, but I also want better for myself. And when I see other people acting in that way, I'm not judgmental in the same way that I was because I was once that chaotic person too. I was once unwilling and unable to help myself. I just kept bouncing from toxic man to toxic man, from bad decision to bad decision, from, you know, frantic choices to frantic choice. And I have, you know, complete compassion for anybody that's making those same decisions, because sometimes it's the only way that you know. But you need to be able to forgive yourself and to forgive other people to be able to get out of that.
0: How recent has that forgiveness for yourself been? Because I know that dealing with your PTSD and your anxiety, I know that it came to a head during the pandemic, didn't it? Which is like still only a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, well, writing this book really unearthed a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, since I've been in the public eye, it hasn't been as bad because the chaos all then became external.
0: That's really interesting. That's (laughs) fascinating because you might think that's counterintuitive that being in the public eye would make it worse. But you're right
1: that you can externalise your head. I feel like I was just sorting myself out and then fame happened. And then I was like, (laughs) okay, well, now I need to level up personally because all of the chaos is no longer just inside of me and in my personal life. It's now in the public sphere. So it changed when I came into the public eye, And then, obviously, like, navigating extremely wild situations that nobody should be in, like, you know, being sacked by one of the biggest beauty brands in the world or, you know, having to leave the Labour Party as an advisor or being attacked by a member of the House of Lords or being assaulted live on television or, you know, all of these wild things that have happened over the past five years. I really had to level up and be on my own side. So it forced me to grow, But then I guess I wasn't processing any of it because I was in go mode. I was in, you know, how am I going to get through this mode? And then when the pandemic happened, yeah, it all came out and I started feeling everything. Not only what I hadn't processed in the public eye, but what I hadn't processed before it because I was also in go mode then. Yes. So I started having PTSD from being raped. And I even had, you know, stuff come up from childhood because I realised in writing this book that everything is linked, that all of my decisions that I made as a adult were influenced and impacted by what had happened to me in my childhood and in my teens. And I just started feeling extremely angry at everything, at my parents, at society, at the government, at myself. And then I guess I started feeling like I was grieving, Mm -hmm. like I was grieving a life that I didn't have, that I realised that none of that should have happened at all to anybody. And then I started just letting it go. And then stress happened. Then I went to rehab and then my ex died. And then whilst grieving for her, I feel like it just changed something. I had a new respect and understanding of like my own mortality and like life in itself. And I started feeling like this is my life. And all of this stuff that's happened to me is not me. This trauma that I have is not my identity. It is my story. Who am I outside of this trauma? Who am I in this life? Mm. And I feel like her death in a lot of ways really shook me awake. And I've just been in a very, very different place since grieving her loss, because I feel like I'm not going to allow what happened to her to happen to myself or to anybody else that I love. And it brought me closer to myself and to the other people in my life that I love.
0: You're living life for the both of you, in a way. Yeah. Did it take a
1: lot of therapy to get this wise? (laughs) No, just a lot of trauma. Okay. Uh, (laughs) A lot of introspection. And I think so in, in different ways. I mean, I'm not really a kind of person that likes to talk to strangers I think therapy is massively I'm not a therapy denier or anything I think it's massively important and you, you should pick the therapy that works for you so I think different kinds of therapy work for different people I'm not really into just talking mm-hmm. to somebody that about you know what I've been through I love might as well call that for a podcast <laughs> <laughs> well exactly but uh yeah different kinds of therapies definitely have worked I think it's really down to who you have in your life. And I have the most amazing friends. I have an incredible team around me. I would not have been able to get through it if I didn't have an incredible team. My management are not just managers. They are friends that, you know, my, my manager saw me on Good Morning Britain debating Piers Morgan and, and tracked me down that day and signed me on the spot. And we've been together ever since. And my publicists are incredible in, you know, sheltering me and understanding how it is for trans people in the media and educating themselves. So I'm very well protected, but I'm also very, very conscious of the fact that this is this is my life. Mm. And I'm not going to allow people to tear me down anymore. I'm not going to allow them to tear other people like me down. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes the most difficult situations that you could ever imagine to get you there.
0: You mentioned L'Oreal there, and I just, I'm aware that I also talked about it at the top of this podcast. And so for anyone who didn't know, and I was reminded about how wild this was by reading your book. So you were appointed, you were the first transgender model that L'Oreal had ever used Mm -hmm. and you posted on social media about the Charlottesville massacre Mm -hmm. and you said lots of incredibly reasonable things.
1: Well, yeah, I I was angry. It was kind of like people were almost more concerned with the fact that I was angry and the fact that I was using swear words than the fact that we were witnessing a Nazi protest and people being killed by white supremacists driving cars into them, of course I was going to be angry. Of course I was going to, you know, be, you know, screaming from the top of my lungs because no one was listening. Nobody wanted to talk about racism, even though we were seeing it play out in the most extreme way that you could possibly see it play out. So, uh, yeah, that time Mm. was... And and
0: really, you you were calling out white supremacy and you were saying, rightly, every white person has to look at that and has to look at the institutional nature of racism and what we've inherited from a deeply traumatic past mm-hmm. for black people. And when I read it again, I was like, yes, of course, agree with every single word. At the time, because you were still ahead of your time, there were all of these tabloid-generated headlines mm-hmm. about you claiming all white people were racist, and L'Oreal ditched you, mm-hmm. very like that, mm-hmm. which was an incredibly difficult period for you professionally. Mm-hmm. Fast forward black lives matter happens l'oreal posts a black square for blackout tuesday mm-hmm. and you leave at 48 hours and then you rightly call them on that and say you've never reached out to me you've never apologized about what you yeah. did and then a conversation was facilitated with the head of l'oreal and now you are on their diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. board which is great so i just wanted to bring people up to speed on that <laughs> it is a very <laughs> wild story <It>
1: really,
0: really, <laughs> Really is. Yeah. And one of the things that you say so powerfully in the book, I wonder if I wrote the quote down about how we again, like I, as as a, a privileged white person, do not get a daily assault of seeing white people's dead bodies assaulted by the state yeah. on social media. We are violently accustomed to seeing that happen to black bodies. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 it was just a, a really necessary passage for every single person to read, the fact that we've become so accustomed to that that there's yeah. no dignity no. for the black body.
1: No. Well, it says that. it's just seen as a body, isn't it? It's not seen as a human being with a lover or kids or a future. Mm. It's not seen as loss. It's just seen as, you know, expected. And that's what's so disgusting. I mean, I talk about in the book where when I heard about Eric Garner being killed, I instantly just thought, well, that could be my dad. That could be anybody that I knew. And what would his family be going through right now? Just seeing his body be just like shared on social media like it was nothing. There's a respect that we afford white people in life and in death that black people just aren't given and it's it's really it's really disgusting it's it's really quite something and i mean it's even the same with you know trans people it's we're, we're seen as our bodies we're not seen as people we're not seen as daughters we're not seen as lovers or people that contribute to society because we're often not given the opportunity in society and you know unfortunately we're so often shunned as daughters we're shunned as lovers we're we're this constant experience of being shunned that when we're dead we're also shunned in death so yeah I think that that's something that a lot of marginalized people experience within cultures where there is such a stark hierarchy of who is given the respect in life
0: and at the same time as your bodies are shunned, they're also politicised in a way that you have never asked for. So I want to get on to your final failure now, having given that preamble, because I wondered if it fed into this final failure, which is your failure to play by the rules, mm-hmm. which ended up playing a key role in your career. Mm. And I wondered if that L'Oreal example of you making that original post was one of your quote-unquote failures to play by the rules. Well, I think
1: getting sacked (laughs) is kind of a failure. Um, It's hard to spin that one, but I I managed it. Um, I think it's, yeah, I mean, that was a big failure in my eyes. At the time, I I was like, oh God, shall I just have said nothing? Because I didn't know that I would be able to build a career off of a life of authenticity and just saying what I believe to be true, what I know to be true. I hadn't seen any trans people before me in the industry really and, and the, do the same kind of thing. The only people that I really could look to were in America. And they were actresses or singers or, you know, in the entertainment industry, but somebody who worked in fashion and then spoke about their lived experiences and also campaigned for their community. Fashion and activism really weren't synonymous mm-hmm. or being you know, used in harmony when I came into the industry. I mean, Grace Jones did it incredibly. She got so much flack in terms of how she refused to be, you know, the nice, kind of palatable, feminine woman. She was constantly questioned about her sexuality. And that's the kind of woman that I look to. I look to a woman that refuses to play by the rules someone who is going to be herself regardless, someone who is going to constantly push the envelope. And sometimes that includes pushing people's buttons because she knows that the reason that she's pushing the buttons is to hold up a mirror. And if people don't get it now, then they eventually will. And I think that that's really been the curve of my career is that at the time, a lot of people don't understand what I'm saying or what I'm doing, but I do. And the people that I need to understand me do. And the people that I don't need to understand me straight away will eventually. And eventually I feel like we're all going to get onto the same page. The way that the world is moving with, you know, cost of living crisis and political polarity and all of these constant failings at the highest levels of government. We all need to pull together if we have a hope of, getting into a better place so we really do need to understand each other and we need to do it quicker than we are but that desire to be understood that desire to be liked that desire to play by the rules is not something that I hold dear to my heart anymore I want my community to be understood and I need people to do that quick I don't need to be understood as a person because you know you can get there in your own time because I'm just one person but you need to understand my community's stat because we need people's support. We need people to understand what's going on um, at the highest levels of government. You know, We've got a prime minister who says that he wants to remove transgender rights from protections that would allow us to be in the right prisons, in the right hospital wards, to not be discriminated against in the workplace. To use the bathrooms that we want to use. It's absolutely insane to me that we have the highest minister in office sanctioning transphobia, making it seem like we don't already have these rights, you know, just throwing it into question. Like when the time comes to vote, people are almost assuming that we don't have these rights already. So they're going to, of course, vote against them. And we're being framed as a threat, as a danger, as an inconvenience. There's no mention of what trans people are actually up against. That we are struggling to find employment. That mental health issues are massively disproportionate within our community, and we make up a tiny proportion of the population. That we are often being thrown out of our homes at an early age that our healthcare system is in crisis and it takes up to five to seven years to just get a first appointment, that trans youth are self-harming and trying to take their own lives from a very early age because they're not being helped when it comes to gender-affirmative therapies or healthcare. You know, no kids are getting surgeries. There's so much misinformation going out and around. So these are the real issues that we're facing, not the fact that we want to use the changing rooms in Primark, but that is the constant
0: totally.
1: conversation. It's yeah. almost like, look what's over there, not what's actually happening here.
0: If I were to ask you to define yourself and to give you five words, what
1: five words would you use? Oh God, I'm so bad at talking about myself. Oh, I would say open I like to think that I meet people as they are, that I try not to project how I feel about people before I get to know them, because we never have a hope in knowing who someone is from the first five seconds. So first impressions are never right. I try to be as forgiving as I can, just because I've had to forgive myself a lot and I've had to forgive other people in my life a lot to be able to move forward. I think I'm a very, very loyal person. I will do anything for my friends often to my own fault. <laughs> Pay me back. Uh, I, I will do anything for my friends. I, I will go above and beyond to make sure that they are happy and healthy and that I hold space for them to heal because I know what it's like to not have that space held for you. And I haven't always had friendships. There's been times when I had no friends. So I really value the ones that I do have. And I don't have that many of them because it's very hard to meet people in this industry. When you live a public life, people have an idea of who you are before you even meet them. So it's very difficult to suss out people's intentions or people's preconceptions. So the next one? Ambitious.
0: Love that.
1: I think I'm an extremely ambitious person. I have a drive that I think is my biggest attribute I've really had to live a life of discipline and a life of tenacity and constant setbacks, constant people that are are gatekeeping, people that are withholding. And, you know, coming into the fashion industry, nobody wanted to hire me. And it took some of the biggest photographers just taking a chance on me, like Nick Knight, like Rankin, who wanted to work with me when, you know, I was constantly having doors slammed in my face because they were like, Why would we work with a trans person almost? And it's, you know, I know that a lot of black models from the 90s felt the same way. It's like, we're, you know, I I watched a documentary the other day where they're like, we're we're just not hiring black models this season. It's exactly the same. It's like, why would we work with a trans person? There's not that kind of campaign, it's not an LGBT campaign. Wow. And like, now we're seeing that change, we're seeing trans people be in shows and it's not a thing that they're trans. It's just, you know, it is a thing because the visibility is incredible. And, you know, when I see a trans model on a runway, if it's like Alex or if it's Maxim or if it's, oh God, India, or if it's all of these incredible people that are within the industry that means so much to me, but it is not exploited that they're trans Mm -hmm. anymore. And for so long it was. I have done shoots where my transness has been, you know, almost like a gimmick. And I'm really glad that I've opened doors for so many people. I've been in this industry for almost, almost a decade now. But it, if it wasn't for, you know, hearing the stories of, you know, women like Naomi Campbell and Joan Smalls and Jordan Dunn and Leomi Anderson talking about, you know, being exploited from like the ages of 14 and being told that there's no black models this season or being on set and not knowing how to do black hair. If it wasn't for those stories and seeing their tenacity and that they could get through it, then I could apply the same kind of work ethic and be like, okay, well one day, there's going to be more than one trans person on the runway, or there's going to be a trans person on the runway. <laughs> and, you know, I have faith that there's going to be multiple trans people on runways one day, and then that's going to filter out as well. And then we're going to see more trans people in all sorts of campaigns. And then the beauty standard is going to change. And then trans beauty is not going to be seen as any different from any other beauty, just like black beauty is now getting the respect that it didn't once upon a time. and. That's really, you know, what the book is about as well, is that everything does change. And I've really got faith that one day trans people are going to be able to navigate society in the same kind of freedom that other people that experience the same kind of oppression in yesteryear did. And we'll just be able to be ourselves without having to constantly be so aware of the fact that we're different.
0: You gave me four words. I'm going to let
1: you off the final one. Oh, I'm sorry. I
0: forgot (laughs) that I was. um,
1: Maybe the last one's long winded. (laughs)
0: It's such a beautiful place to end. And if I can, I would like to give the final word. You're like, this
1: is quick fire. I think.
0: No, I never wanted to be quick fire with you, honestly. I could do this for hours, but I know you've got a fabulous lunch to go to. The final word for me would be powerful. You're so powerful. You're powerful in your truth, you're powerful in your words on the page, you're powerful in person. I am so grateful to you for finding time to do How to Fail. Honestly, it's meant the world to me. Thank you. And I want everyone to stop listening right now and to rush out and buy your book because it blew my mind and I know it will, the listeners too. Monroe Bergdorf, thank you so much for
1: coming on How to Fail. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you.